Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Christian Miller on the podcast. Dr. Miller is A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University and Director of the Character Project, funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Templeton World Charity Foundation. He is the author of over 75 papers, as well as the author of Moral Character, an Empirical Theory, Character, and Moral Psychology, and most recently, the book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? Hey, Christian, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me on your show. So how good are we really? Well, <laughs> that's a big question to start us off right away. Uh, <laughs> Out of one, the gate. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let's not mess around. So one question is, what does good mean here? And what are our standards that we're going to be used to evaluate whether someone is good or not? Another question is who the we is. And then another question still is, what source of evidence am I going to be using to decide how good are we? But uh, let me all say something briefly on each of those. So the good I have in mind here when we say how good are we is virtuous. So I'm a, I'm a philosopher who's, who works in the area of ethics. And within the area of ethics, there's a longstanding tradition to think about good people and bad people in terms of the kind of character they have and whether they're virtuous people or vicious people. And so I could say a lot more about what I mean by a virtue or a vice, but just to put that on the table... When I say, how good are we, I'm thinking about how virtuous are we. The, the we I have in mind here tends to be contemporary people, so I'm not saying throughout history, uh, tends to be Westerners, because the source of evidence I'm drawing on tends to focus on just Western populations, and it tends to be adults as opposed to children. And then the, the, the last part of it is, what's the source of evidence that I'm going to be using? 
that's that's where you come in. So that's where where psychology helps me out. Um, looking at studies that have been done in social and personality psychology over the last 50 years or so, roughly speaking, which put people into different situations, uh, morally relevant situations. I'm looking at moral character here and uh, see how they tend to behave. Do they cheat or not cheat? Do they lie or not lie? Do they steal or not steal? Do they help or not help? And so I, you know, we, we can dive into the particular studies, but uh, to tie all that together then, using the research that I'm familiar with in psychology, which tends to focus on contemporary Western populations, and using the ethical standards of virtue and vice, my conclusion now to not evade the question anymore, is that most of us are a mixed bag. By that I mean uh, we have some aspects of our character which are morally positive and some aspects of our character which are morally negative. But in general, most people, I'm not saying everyone, they're outliers, this is a kind of a bell curve kind of situation. Most people, given my reading of the data, have a character which is not good enough to count as virtuous, but on the flip side, it's not bad enough to count as vicious. So we're somewhere in a murky middle between the two. Yeah, that's so interesting. I um, I recently did this paper. We looked at the light versus dark triad of personality. We created a light triad scale to be a nice counterpart to the dark triad scale, which consists of psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And we found, consistent with what you're saying, we looked at a light versus dark triad balance within individuals. Can I calculate what are most people like their light and dark force? What is it in, yeah. in the average human? And we actually empirically asked, tried to answer that question. And we found that most people are like slightly tipped to the right of, of okay. lightness. But it's like basically empirically confirms exactly what you just said. Okay. Okay, great. Was that more with self-report measures? That was based on self-report measures, but we also correlated the light triad with performance measures of conspicuous consumption and cheating and stuff, okay. like greed, well, greed, yeah. I look forward to the paper and all, all, all the support I can get, you know, I, I welcome it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, well, we have lots to talk about because you initiated this project called The Character Project. I'd like to hear some of the main findings, the main takeaways from The Character Project and who were the sample? Right. So we're in this, the sample. Yeah. Right. So this is a quite a large project that had many different facets to it. So let me kind of paint a picture, and then we can go in different directions if you like. Uh, this was a five-year project based at Wake Forest University, where I am, funded by the Templeton Foundation, as you mentioned, and it had a component of research at Wake Forest, and then it had another component which was funding research at other universities around the world. So we actually became a kind of mini-grant-making mini uh, institute ourselves, where we had researchers in psychology, philosophy, and theology apply with proposals for new and innovative work on the topic of character. They applied to us. We had, a, uh, had their, their proposals reviewed and funded the best ones we received. So we ended up funding 28 scholars around the world, uh, very interesting products in psychology especially. Uh, but then also there was the aspect of what we did here at Wake Forest. And by we, I mean myself, I was the, the one heading it up in, in the philosophy department, but with a team of other people, including some prominent personality psychologists like William Fleeson, Mike Furr, and Arata Jayawikriam uh, in our, uh, our psychology department here. So the psychologists here did a number of empirical studies. And in, in my own case, I was doing what I explained, explored a little bit already with you, that kind of interdisciplinary work at the intersection of philosophy 
and psychology. So where philosophy was going to be informing me as to what the a good life is and what it is to be a virtuous person, and then the psychological research was going to be informing me as to the extent to which people tend to live up to those standards of what it is to be a good person. And so in my own case, that ended up uh, resulting in the two academic books that you mentioned uh, in, in your introduction, uh, Character and Moral Psychology and Moral Character and Empirical Theory. So the overall takeaway, I think, and we can get into the, the specific findings of different projects, the overall takeaway is that we, we really wanted to infuse a lot of excitement and energy and resources into the study of character in these three disciplines. We thought, you know, there's some work going on already, but not much. And we wanted to kind of incentivize and get people paying more attention to it. Now that it, the product is over and we've been, it's been over for a couple of years now, we've seen lots more work coming out in the, in the area of character. And that's one of the great rewards that I'm most proud of. That is great. You gave really great context behind the study. Did you tell me some of the key takeaways of the study? Did I miss yeah, that? Yeah, so, so it's hard to say that there's any one study. Oh, okay. Because, so, you know, I could, we had my books, we had the, the psychology research at Wake Forest, um, we had the, the products that were funded elsewhere. I'll, I'll mention, how about I just give you a couple of highlights? Um, yes, the highlight reel. So one psychology product we funded was at University of Barcelona by David Gallardo. And he was doing a uh, virtual reality simulation of the Milgram experiment. So since you can't do Milgram anymore these days for you know ethical reasons, he had this kind of innovative thought of using this virtual reality lab uh, that he has there to simulate in many ways uh, the real study, but without a person, quote unquote, getting the shocks instead of virtual reality avatar who was getting the shocks uh, in the in the shock. Well, is that ecologically valid? Well, that's good. Good question to ask him. Um, he made the case that it was. And I was, you know, at the time, uh, this was six, seven years ago, I, I was convinced by his arguments. And the findings tended to mirror, for whatever this is worth, uh, tend to mirror those that Milgram found himself. So roughly the same percentage of participants would go up to the XXX shock level as compared to those who wouldn't go that high. So that's one illustration of the kind of product we studied in psychology. Another one was looking at, at, from a developmental perspective, at when is there evidence fairness norms emerging in young infants? You know, at what stage is there, can we kind of detect that they pay attention to fairness norms? And this researcher suggested it could be as early as nine months based on her behavioral work. A third researcher, Sarah Conrath, was looking at ways to encourage empathy, and she was using a, a text message uh, a manipulation, or I'm sorry, intervention to see whether by receiving text messages periodically during the day, which had empathetic themes to them, that might be effective in cultivating uh, empathy in the participants, and then subsequently leading them to behave better on a helping task than a control group, which did not receive empathy-inducing texts. And she found some preliminary evidence that that was the case. So that's why I struggled when I said when you said what, what are the what's the results of the study? There are three very different studies with you know very different goals in mind, but all under the broad heading of investigating character from an empirical perspective. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. So is there a website where people can read up about the summaries of yeah. all the findings? Yeah, that's great. Uh, so we have a website, www.thecharacterproject, all one word, dot okay. com. And we have summaries. We also have videos. 
have speaking at a conference, the participants, and summarizing their results. And we have links to the published works as well. So it seems like you're defining character as tinged with morality, whereas a lot of people in the field of positive psychology, you know, who use the VIA personality strengths inventory, a lot of those character strengths are not necessarily tinged with morality. In fact, you could have a character strength for, let's say, authenticity and be authentic in being an asshole, right? So why do you choose to define character in the way you have chosen it? Do you have criticism on how others have chosen to define it? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. Great question. Um, Thanks. So let me be, be a little clearer. And I think uh, actually I'm going to agree with your points. So the uh, one broad category here could be personality traits. Uh, with un, Under the heading of personality traits, you might say that one uh, species is character traits. Okay. And then under the heading of character traits, you might say there's one species are moral character traits, okay. morally relevant character traits. So I uh, do agree that character traits are broader than just the morally relevant ones. Okay. Some people try to classify them and divide them into different kinds. So, for example, some people say that there are epistemic character traits, those character traits that have to do with theoretical inquiry, theoretical knowledge and wisdom and, and understanding and the like. Others will say that there are character traits associated with aesthetics and beauty. Others, character traits associated with athletics. And then there are the moral ones, too. So I don't mean to conflate character traits just with the moral ones. I think that's quite right to say that they're a kind of character trait. For me, I just chose in my own research to focus on the morally ones, morally relevant ones. I had to start somewhere. I'm an ethics professor. That's what, that's what I do. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it seems natural to start with those. So when I say things like most people's character is, is neither virtuous or vicious, what I mean here is moral character. I'm speaking to that specifically. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty common approach to take. I think so as well, yeah. Let's talk philosophically about definitions here and mm -hmm. boundary conditions. Can we precisely delineate where something is fits within the realm of a character trait, personality trait versus a non-character personality traits. So are the big five, they're not usually treated as character traits. Uh -huh. Philosophically, why not? Can you justify or explain to me why extroversion, introversion dimension of personality is not a character dimension, but let's say bravery, non-bravery is? And doesn't it get murky when you start to like really think about it <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, realize yeah. that bravery is strongly correlated with extroversion? So in a sense, you are saying that, <laughs> you know, yeah. okay, do you see what I'm saying? It gets yeah, yeah, complicated. Yeah, yeah. I, I sure do. So I don't know if I can, you know, give you what you want, but here are some thoughts at least. One thought is that when people say that, you know, the big five are not dealing with character, what they typically mean is moral character here. So they're saying there are big five traits and they're fastest, and then they'll, they'll say, there's moral character traits, and then they'll say, well, there's, we don't see much moral character in the big five. Maybe under agreeableness, we might say there's modesty, uh, and maybe there's some kind of helping going on. But by and large, there doesn't seem to be much moral character in the big five or its facets it's on a surface reading. And that's, I think, a, a fair point to make. But there's a deeper question that you're asking here, which is, can we kind of give a precise criteria to distinguish say, moral character on the one side from non-moral personality on the other. I don't know if we can, but I'll at least mention one or two attempts. So one attempt is to, is to focus on the topic of responsibility and to say, 
that our character traits are those for which it's appropriate to hold someone morally responsible or not. Uh, whereas it, when we think about other personality traits that are not moral character traits, we wouldn't necessarily have to hold someone responsible for possessing them. So to take your example, someone's level of extroversion or introversion, it wouldn't seem to be appropriate to hold someone morally responsible for that. But someone's level of honesty or compassion or maybe even temperance, it would be appropriate to hold someone morally responsible for those traits. So I'm not saying this is a perfect proposal, but I'm saying it's one that's out there that's been proposed to draw this kind of criteria. I'm trying to, okay, I'm trying to like rub my head around that. So it gets tricky when you like with the VIA 24 character strengths, Mm -hmm. some of them are treated as independent of each other. And what gets tricky about that is if you're extroverted, you're probably going to be more likely to, like, I'm really trying to think the relationship between personality and character strengths. So if you're more extroverted, you're going to be like much more likely to report zest as one of your character strengths. If you're more introverted, you're going to be more likely to select humility. We found this in our own research we did with Susan Cain and some other particular subset of character strengths. So yet, when we look at the big five, you know, we'll say like, oh, there's a distinction here between personality and character. You know, like the introversion, extroversion dimension is amoral. But we actually have on the VIA, we have different sources of variation that can kind of actually conflict. And I don't know if that's problematic at all. So you're thinking that in the case of the VIA, what's looked like perhaps some non-moral traits do tend to be strongly correlated with some relatively uncontroversial moral traits. And so it's hard to draw any sharp boundaries in a classification. I don't know what I'm really saying, because I love the VIA in the sense that I found it really useful for a lot of people to take it and find their top strengths. You know, so much of life and self-actualization, in my view, is helping people find how they want to live their own best life in their own way without giving Mm -hmm. them you know, their own sort of like, you know, rules. And they have to kind of discover that and discover it for themselves. And the, the VIA is a nice way to help people discover some sides of themselves. But it's, uh, you know, maybe it's just too pedantic. I'm being too pedantic in trying to think through, well, what is a absolutely non-character personality trait, uh-huh. you know? And like, why is Zest a, a character trait when it's essentially big five extroversion or one facet of extroversion. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, I mm, mean, it mm. is. Zest is almost perfect correlated with positive enthusiasm, which is one of the two main fa- enough aspects of extroversion. Yeah, so I, I wonder, this is maybe just getting semantic at this point. It might be, and I might be way too, being way too pedantic, even more no. so than a philosopher. So, I mean, it, it was called the character strengths. Uh, the 24 character strengths. I wonder how much is packed into the notion of character there in, in character strengths. Uh, I mean, another way to think about this that might be helpful is, you know, if we're thinking about is something a part of moral character or not? Is it, can we kind of draw boundaries around the realm of moral character? Well, take a given trait and vary it, strengthen it or weaken it. Does that change our moral assessment of the person or not? For something like zest, I would think that initially the answer would be no. I mean, increase someone's zest or decrease someone's zest, that's not going to change how I would morally uh, assess or appraise the person. But you take something like honesty and increase someone's honesty or decrease someone's honesty, that does change my overall uh, assessment of the morality 
of that person's character. So that might be a, 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 another way to helpfully think about drawing, trying to draw the boundaries of, of moral character. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. Within the character strengths space, there's a subset that are related to moral character. Yeah, that's all you're really saying. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I'm going to move on from my pedanticism and uh, ask you, you know, you looked at what our character looks like today in various dimensions, helping, harming, lying, and cheating. Can we talk about them? Can we, can we start with helping? You know, where are people at these days in terms of helping? Sure. So figure that out from the armchair. I'm a philosopher. Yeah, I like to do a lot of things from the armchair. It'd be great if I could arrive at all these answers without having to get weighed into the empirical literature. But for something like that, I need the empirical literature. So I would look at, on the one hand, studies which found that people didn't help very much. And I would then, on the other hand, look at studies which found that people helped quite a bit. And I would kind of examine what factors would predict whether the, the uh, participants would tend to help or not. So my ultimate goal there is to think, are people's helping, is, is people's helping tracking the morally relevant considerations or not? Are people helping in light of the, 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 uh, the uh, correct moral considerations, or, and are they not helping in light of the correct moral considerations or not? So that's the, the abstract answer. Now to get into some of the, the specifics, so I'll give you two studies on opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, we have something like group effect studies, where, you know, to take one of the, the classic examples, lady in distress, 1969, uh, participants come into the lab, they, uh, one at a time, they go into a room. They're told to fill out a survey. A stranger joins them in the room filling out the survey. So the two of them are hard at work. The person in charge who gave them the survey leaves, goes into the next room. A few minutes later, there, there's a loud crash and screams of pain and crying and say, my leg, my leg, ouch, ouch, ouch. And, you know, in, you know what happens subsequently? The question is, did the participants do anything to help? You know, cry out. Do, can I get someone to help you or run into the next room or not? And it seemed like if it was a, it seems to me like if it was a compassionate person, a highly virtuous person, they would tend to help. And their helping wouldn't vary as a function of what the stranger with them did. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, it, for actual participants, it did vary considerably. So if the stranger with them does nothing, just keeps working on the survey as if there's no emergency at all, by and large, you know, this, this is no news, new news, this is very famous research. By and large, the participants won't help either. So in that particular study, only 7% of participants did anything at all to help. As compared to another version where they were alone with no stranger at all. And in that version, 70% helped. So it seemed like their behavior was quite sensitive to what another person in the room was doing. Uh, and in particular, uh, the underlying story has to do with factors of embarrassment, fear of embarrassment, and that's the most important moral considerations. So that seems to me to reflect somewhat badly on character. I wouldn't draw grandiose lessons from that. One study doesn't prove anything here. I'm just giving you a kind of an illustration of one of the more de depressing or disappointing results that I came across. On the flip side, with help, helping, uh, I'm really impressed with the work of Daniel Batson, who's at Kansas for most of his career uh, and is one of the le leading researchers on the topic of empathy and helping. It's long been known that when you uh, increase participants' empathy, uh, they subsequently are much more likely to help. Uh, there's an empathy-helping relationship. That's no, no, no big discovery. But Batson 
you know, one of his claims to fame in, in, the, in the research world is to try and come up with an explanatory hypothesis for why empathy tends to lead to higher levels of helping behavior. And his proposal, the empathy altruism hypothesis, proposes that uh, the motivation that's induced by feeling empathy is genuinely altruistic motivation. It's uh, motivation concerned with benefiting others for their own sake, independent of whether I, the actor, benefit or not. So uh, in one, one of his studies, uh, he had, the, uh, these are college students, uh, they had an opportunity to help uh, what they were told was a fellow member of their university who they'd never come across and who, uh, who had been in a terrible uh, car wreck and was in need of a tremendous amount of help in order to be able to graduate from the university. And it's cut through the details just to get to the, the punchline. Uh, control subjects, uh, by and large, did not sign up to help. Those who had been given a different two-sentence manipulation in the instructions, by and large, uh, did sign up to help. Uh, this uh, Katie Banks, this uh, uh, fellow, allegedly fellow student at the university. And then, uh, if Batson's right, not only are they uh, acting more helpfully because of the empathy manipulation, but their motivation to help is altruistic. That's the kind of motivation I would expect of a virtuous person, of a compassionate person in particular. So to summarize and then I'll stop, uh, when I looked at this literature and helping, I saw two kind of sides of it, a kind of more discouraging side where there's evidence of lack of helping, not for very good reasons, and a more positive side where there's evidence of helping, and in uh, some cases when it's empathetic helping, for quite good reasons. And so uh, no surprise then at that point, I drew the conclusion that we're a rather mixed bag in between, <laughs> in between the poles of virtue and vice, or in this case, compassion and callousness. Sure. How much did you look at individual difference moderators? Very little. Um, tell me more about why I probably should have. Well, I'm a personality <laughs> researcher, so, right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, like clearly certainly make uh, conclusions about humans on average, but, you know, there's certain people who are persistently, consistently more along the lines of the antagonism spectrum, and there yeah. are those who are more agreeable, and right. yeah, that yeah. has a lot of yeah. predictive value as well. Yeah, yeah. so, so I mean, two things. One, uh, I'm not conducting the studies myself. Uh, again, I'm a philosopher reading the, the research, so I'm kind of relying on what the studies themselves did in gotcha. terms of measuring individual differences. But then secondly, my view, and I really want to stress this, because sometimes it can come across as I'm just lumping everyone into one box and saying, well, in this kind of situation, we, you know, everyone's going to behave this way. In this other kind of situation, everyone's going to behave this other way. No, I mean, that never turned out to be the case. In the individual situations, there were always uh, individual differences in the behavior that was found. And my own you know, overall view here is that there's going to be a, a spectrum. So there's going to be, you know, if, if we're comfortable with categorical labels here, which sometimes we're not, fine, especially talking to psychologists, um, but we're, we're comfortable with categorical labels here. There's you know, the virtue side of things. There's the vice side of things. There's this middle space in between virtue and vice, or using the example I just had, compassion and callousness. And my, my, my reading of the literature, my takeaway is that while many people are in this spa middle space, not all are. They're going to be outliers on both ends. So you're going to have you know, your, your Hitler's on the one end, you're going to have your Gandhi's on the other. And that's uh, why the cover of the, the latest book, The Character Gap, has, you know, 
precisely on the cover, uh, Gandhi on the top and, and Hitler on the bottom. So just to emphasize that it's not all just uh, monolithic here. There's a, a nice, uh, or I think it's possible to think that people fall on a spectrum of virtue and vice. Gotcha. Okay, so what, what about harming? Yeah, so same kind of story here. So it, it follows the same kind of scripts, but I use different examples. So the main one that I focus on this, you know, in this element of my research and, and wrote about in the character gap, the, the trade book, was the Milgram experiment. So, you know, don't have to say much about that for your listeners. Uh, but interestingly, even in the Milgram experiment, it's not, I don't think the right lesson to draw is a really pessimistic, negative, vicious kind of conclusion. Some people do draw that. I mean, they see, wow, you know, these participants came in here and within the span of this one session, they essentially were willing to kill an innocent person, an innocent stranger. Boy, isn't that just a bad reflection on their character? Aren't, aren't they, you know, vicious? And if we're like them, aren't we vicious too? In this, in this context, aren't we malevolent or cruel or, uh, or a little like of that? So it's easy to take the, I think a lot of this harming literature in that direction, in a more pessimistic direction. So maybe it's worth to highlight, kind of counterbalance that with even in Milgram, there's it's a mixed bag. Mm. So you know, kind of famously, he had other variations rather than the the one that you know most uh, intro students encounter. So he had variations where there was no authority figure, or he had variations where there was uh, conflicting instructions from the authority figure, or there had variations where there was authority figure but not in the same room. And what we see in those many of those variations is that the shock level goes way down. Uh, in other words, participants aren't nearly as inclined to turn the dial up and up and up and up and up to the XXX level. And in many cases, they keep it at a very moderate uh, moderate level. So that's that's one point. Even though they had free reign, it was up to them. Maybe they could have cho- you know uh, continued on to the XXX level on these other variations if they so choose chose to do so. They tended not to choose to do so. And then there's a, a second point uh, to make here, which is that even in the, the, the famous version, it's not as if, as far as we can tell, the participants were kind of wholeheartedly on board with what they were doing. They would need mm. to be if they were vicious, because one aspect of a vice is a wholehearted motivation, a lack of conflict uh, in one's motivation. So one's beliefs and desires and feelings and so forth line up in a certain direction. And that's also true of a virtue, too. A virtuous person is wholehearted. So if that's right, then we would need to see that in the participants in the Milgram study to draw the conclusion that they were cruel or, or, the, or uh, you know, uh, or any other label you wanted to use. But as far as I can tell, we didn't see that. Hmm. What instead we saw was evidence of conflict, of internal stress. Um, sometimes even external you know, evidence like sweating and you know, shaking and nervousness and, and this kind of thing, which would suggest a deep internal conflict, conflict. that was going on mm. and not what you would expect the psychological prof- profile of a vicious person to be. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. And then very similar findings for lying and cheating? The same pattern, but uh, I think some really cool, innovative studies. Uh, maybe I'll just pick up. On, on the cheating for, for one more illustration. Those uh, examples I gave you from harming and helping tended to be older examples, not to take anything away from them, 
But uh, in the case of cheating, there's this uh, body of research in the last 10 years that uses a certain kind of paradigm to investigate the level of honesty in the participants. And it goes as follows. Uh, you have a control group. They're, they're taking a test with 20 problems. They're told that they're going to be paid, say, 50 cents per correct answer on the test. In this control condition, they just work as hard as they can. They turn in their answers. The authority figure or the, the experimenter, whoever it is in charge, grades the test and pays them accordingly. So there's mm -hmm. no opportunity to cheat. But then there's this other variation where it's now called the, the shredder condition. Very similar in some ways, 50 cents per correct answer, same test, different participants. But the key variation is that they're told after they take the test that they will be the ones to grade the test themselves. Mm. They'll uh, then just be told, they'll, they're told their materials will be shredded or destroyed, and they can just verbally report how many they got correct, correct in quotation marks, so we should keep in mind. And so this provides a space to cheat if one wants to, and get away with it if one wants to. So naturally, in many contexts, people don't cheat because they're afraid of getting caught and the punishment might, might come with it. But in this context, you can cheat if you want to and get away with it, no questions asked, or so one might think. So in it, what are the results here? <clears throat> it tends to be that controls, you know, it depends, it varies from various study to study. You know, one study, seven correct out of 20. Different group now, the shredder condition for this particular study, 14 correct in, in quotation marks, that we should say correct in that shredder condition for that particular study. So double. Now, is it because that this second group was just so much smarter? They did so much, you know, they were really, really good at that test. And so that's why they got 14, right, as opposed to seven. You know, that's possible, but I'm not going to wager any money on that. I don't, I'm not going to buy that explanation. I'm going to buy the other or natural explanation that they probably saw an opportunity to make some money. And then it, it goes on from there. Um, because again, uh, this might give you some pessimistic conclusions, right? Uh, or lead you in a pessimistic direction. You know, oh boy. I might have thought people were honest, but then I see this study, and um, now I'm thinking a lot of people are dishonest. Well, you know, first of all, don't draw any big conclusions from one study. Uh, but secondly, there are now interesting spin-offs and, and variations, iterations of it. So I'll just mention one more. Uh, you can uh, do the same thing, but where by same thing I mean have this shredder condition set up, but do it at a university with an honor code. Uh, where, uh, for example, my university, Wake Forest, we have an honor code here. And so what happens if before they take the test, the participants, in this case, would it be college students, sign their university's honor code, then they take the test, same test, same 50%, uh, 50 cents correct answer incentive, and same opportunity to cheat if you want to because your answer key is going to be shredded. Well, in this one study, cheating disappeared. Mm. The average performance went back down to the, the the control levels. So I see something like that, and I say, oh, uh, wait a minute here. That's a little bit different than I would expect of a dishonest person. I would expect a dishonest person to maybe sign the honor code as a formality. Yeah, I mean, of course, I got to do that. Everyone else is doing that. But then turn around and cheat. Um, take advantage of the same opportunity to cheat that they would have had without the honor code. Honor code. But uh, lo and behold, that's not at least this one study suggests that's not what's going to happen. Of course, we need to see some replication uh, too. Wow. So there's hope for humanity. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a hope if you have an assumption working in the back of 
uh, the discussion. So right now, the picture I've articulated is one where we've kind of got a, a mixed character, is what I call a mixed mm. character, kind of mixed bag. Um, it's hope there in the sense that we're not as bad as we could be, but there's also you know disappointment in that we're not nearly as good as we should be. Mm. But there's another uh, kind of discussion of hope here, which is about change, right? Is there any hope, even if we are a mixed bag or tend to be like myself included, is there any hope to be found in moving the needle to try and get better and get closer to that, that ideal of virtue? And this will rely on an assumption that personality is malleable. Right. Uh, so, and I know you've, you've argued that it is. I've, everything I've read suggested it is. Philosophers, you know, going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, have always thought that that personality is malleable. By that I mean it can change even if it's not going to be overnight or you know some magic pill or anything like that. Slow, gradual change is possible. So if we take that assumption and combine it with this mixed bag idea, then you know I think that the natural question I ask is, well, are there any strategies or steps or you know uh, approaches we can adopt? to gradually, slowly change in the right direction? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so I have some things I might say about that. You know, I, first of all, I hope so. You know, it would be a real shame if there aren't, right? I mean, you know, mm. you know, if, we, if we just said, oh, here, here, here's how things are. Yeah. And, oh, and, and by the way, your personality and, and you know, specifically your, your character can change, but, you know, good luck. Yeah. Go, go figure it out. But I think there are, there are some ideas that do show some promise when I want to carefully kind of qualify i don't say they're they're you know they're infallible or they're guaranteed to produce results or anything like that so in the last part of the the trade book character gap i i I go over about six or seven such strategies and some of them i say they don't look very promising to me so for example the strategy of labeling people as virtuous even if you don't think they are that's that's a strategy you know you could say to kids or to adults you know you know, you're a really compassionate person or you're a really, you know, courageous person, even though you don't think that. Hmm. Just in the hope of getting them to accept that label about themselves and then try to conform their behavior more to that label. That's a, that is a, an actual strategy out there that's been discussed. I'm not so positive about that one. For reasons <laughs> I, 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 can, I can elaborate if you like, um, but just to give you, just to throw one out there. Uh, I go on, though, and, and isolate a couple strategies that I think are more promising. So one uh, has to do with moral, and again, I'm focusing on moral character, moral role models, exemplars, heroes, saints, and the like of that, whether these are fictional, like priest and lay Miz, or whether they're actual people, whether they're more historical, actual people like Abraham Lincoln, Harry Tubman, or whether they're contemporary people whether they're like prominent in society or whether they're our neighbor next door. You know, there are, there are different variations or different ways this can go. But the basic idea is if we uh, come to admire someone for their honesty, let's say, and that admiration, that emotion of admiration, inspires in us a desire to emulate them, to try to become more like them. What I, you know talked about is uh, this feeling of elevation. Mm. That could lead over time, the, the, the hope is to gradually becoming more like them, hmm. right? So if I admire Lincoln for his honesty, and that inspires in me a, a desire to uh, become more like him, to emulate him for his honesty, then 
over time, when I'm confronted with different situations, I could try to think, you know, what, what might he do in this situation? Or how could I be, be like, more like Lincoln in this situation? And that can be an aspirational aim that I gradually get closer and closer to approximating. So I could say more about that, but that's just one example. And I'll give you, give you one other one um, of a strategy that I think uh, shows some promise. And that's educating ourselves more about some of the tendencies that we tend to have in opposition to virtue yeah. that hold us back from being virtuous. So we mentioned already, for example, the group effect and how in groups, even when an emergency is going on, uh, and we it's fairly clear that an emergency is going on, people sometimes don't help. No. Well, that's striking. It's surprising to many. You know, you ask lay people, uh, what would you predict would happen? Or what would you predict you would do in that situation? And, you know, overwhelmingly people say, I, I would help, or the group would help. And, and it often it, that doesn't manifest itself. Why? Well, one leading explanation is that we are quite uh, moved by considerations of embarrassment more than we realize, where we have this fear of embarrassing ourselves in group contexts, mm. and that can hold us back and restrict us from doing the right thing, in this case, helping a stranger in an emergency. Well, well, what if we became more aware of that? What if we learned about some of the research or became more introspective or, you know, I discovered some of these tendencies about ourselves. So we're just aware of them in the first place. And then in situations where they might come into a play, we can counterbalance them. We can mm -hmm. hold them in check. So if, you know, in the future, when a situation where someone needs help and we're in a, in a group context and I feel myself holding back and being reticent, I can also remind myself, well, why? Is this really, you know, worth me blending into the crowd? Or should I step up? Is there any good reason not to step up in that situation and do the right thing? So role models seem promising and what I call getting the word out and learning more about our tendencies, uh, which hold us back, seems promising as well. Yeah, maybe that could be incorporated into education, yeah. KK-12. Yeah, I think, I think both could be. And both in some cases are. Um, some schools do this intentionally. I mean, in in one sense, the role modeling is happening already across the board, whether we think about it or not. I mean, <clears throat> teachers already are serving as role models, and the values that they're espousing to their students and the way they're living their lives in front of their students is serving a role modeling function, even if the school itself or the teacher in particular never gave any thought to character role modeling in the first place. So yeah. it's, it's... I love that. Yeah. I love that. I try my best to model for students the characteristics that I want them to try to develop, but it's not easy. <laughs> right. That's right. You know, it's not easy, especially when students are not there yet and they're not modeling it back. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 for sure. It can be very hard to remain at a sort of higher level of uh, wisdom and compassion and loving kindness. When someone's not showing that in return. That's right. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and I try to do the same thing myself in a variety of different contexts. So I try to do that with my students. I also have young children. So I'm trying exactly. to do that. Well, yeah. the, sometimes they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. I don't want, right. I don't want to get in trouble with my university here. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also try and do it, you know, uh, yeah. by discipline. So 
uh, in my marriage. You know, there are lots of times when I'm, I'm trying to live out what I care about, but while acknowledging that I have a lot of room to grow and I'm, I'm a very <laughs> flawed and mixed bag myself. Yeah. And so, well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, welcome to the club, but I've been thinking about individual differences and I feel like there's like three latent classes of that we could identify. And, and I've been thinking about constructing a scale to get at this. And I don't think anyone's ever gotten to this, but let me know if you think this makes any sense. It feels like there are people who have more of a conflict between the dark and light forces within. There are those that seem to have accepted their dark side and embrace it almost fully. And there are those that are more unleashed on the light side and just don't have as much of the conflicts in their daily life. Like they're not constantly battling, you know, should I be a nice person or shouldn't? It just comes more naturally than that. Of course I want to, I have the empathy. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone's really done a good job capturing the, like the conflict of the force as an individual differences variable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you'll find uh, plenty of resources in philosophy Oh, that's uh, for, for sure. Product. Throughout the yeah, course so, of human history, there's a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, great, great empirical story. I mean, uh, uh, stories about history. There's also just uh, great conceptual work by philosophers too. So, I mean, one way to to describe what you're saying there uh, is what Aristotle used as his taxonomy of character. So, for Aristotle, he had four. This is simplifying, and he had he had more than four, but. Let's just let's just keep it keep it simple. Initially, um, he had four categories of character. Uh, he had virtue, he had continence or strength of will, incontinence or weakness of will, and then vice. Mm. And so you you have three categories there. Um, but interestingly, the virtue that's wholeheartedly oriented towards the light. To use your terminology, there's no conflict in the virtuous person. They're wholeheartedly oriented in a certain direction. The vicious person similarly is wholeheartedly oriented. But of course, in the opposite direction, towards the dark, and then for the continent and incontinent, uh -huh. what what what, uh, what, they, what do they have in common? They're both conflicted, and the yeah. difference, um, of course, is how they resolve the conflict. Right, and that's right. Kind of More person, power comes in as another moderator there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but uh, so the kind of person resolves the conflict in favor of the right thing, the incontinent person resolves the conflict in favor of the wrong thing or the bad thing, but they're both conflicted. So in a sense, uh, you and Aristotle seem to be on the same page. Oh, I'll, let's end on that note. <laughs> let's, let, let's let that sit there for eternity. Hey, thank you so much for chatting with me today and for um, your real pioneer, truly pioneering work integrating positive psychology and philosophy. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.